Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thank you so much for being with me today. Today, my guest is Bruce Kappen. If you're not familiar with Bruce, Bruce is a musician who has worked on many studio projects, often as a pedal steel player. He was a member of the group American Music Club, and over the years, he's performed on records for artists like Sheryl Crow, The Black Crows, R.E.M., John Lee Hooker, Chris Isaac, Red House Painters, Love and Rockets, and so many others. You may have even seen some of his television performances when he was working with David Byrne on his Feelings Tour, and when Jewel was on Saturday Night Live and MTV Unplugged. So Bruce is definitely an extremely talented musician, and he's also an extremely talented engineer as well, and we definitely get into his story inside of this interview. And I think you're going to get a lot of great information about what it takes to become a session musician and what really goes into it and how you can do it yourself. So if you've ever thought about being that person that performs on other people's records and you know gets paid to do it from your own home studio... This interview is definitely going to give you a lot of insight into what goes into that. So let's just jump right into this interview. Bruce Kappen, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Awesome. For people who might not know your background, I mean, you've had a large history in this industry doing a bunch of different things. Can you tell us that story of how you got into music and ultimately into engineering and session musician, uh, session playing and all that stuff? Sure. Uh, so as a kid, um, I think... I took piano lessons very early on, uh, eventually ended up, uh, kind of making my way into rock bands and that kind of thing by the time I was, you know, in, uh, middle school basically. Uh, and my interest in recording, uh, basically evolved out of my interest in music. I wanted to be able to record, um, the songs I was writing and the music I was playing and, I just turned out to be that guy in the band who just had a instinctual uh, feeling for for how to make it happen. Bought my first reel-to-reel tape recorder as a teenager. Uh, it was a Revox, which was actually made by Studer, which was you know I, I found it used someplace and um, it was a, just a two-track, but it, it kind of got me hooked. I then got into four-track analog. Uh, bought a machine with a couple of partner friends and had a, a terrible little basement studio in the house I was living in. Uh, just ridiculously awful sounding equipment. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I kind of got my my sea legs going with that, as it were, uh, or, you know, my chops going with that semi-pro stuff. And one thing led to another. I was working in a music store uh, and I met a guy who had uh, equipment that he rented to a studio in town. And he and I made a little, you know, deal between the two of us where I could give him a smaller amount of money than the studio would charge to get in the back door and use his trade time. And as it turns out, um, one of the rooms in that studio had this absolutely gorgeous Neve, vintage Neve console. So I kind of got to cut my teeth finally after working in semi-pro horrible gear for a few years. I finally got to start working on real equipment with real microphones. And and that kind of 
got me hooked. Basically, I ended up moving from that into uh, starting to do professional work at that studio for clients and pissing off the studio owner to no end because I was selling time to my clients for cheaper than he was selling it for. And, uh, you know, I, and all this while I was playing in bands, um, networking, um, finally got a, I mean, I was, I was working professionally, so I was working full time as a musician, uh, playing in various nightclub gigs and this and that. And then finally got a pretty good break in 1989 when um, some guys that I knew from earlier on in my life were in a band called American Music Club. And that band was just kind of starting to take off and got some amazing press. And eventually uh, Rolling Stone picked an album that I helped engineer and produce as one of the best five Critics pick one of the best five albums of 1992, and then suddenly there was a feeding frenzy of record companies. We signed a bifurcated deal with uh, Virgin in the whole world except for America and Canada, and then we signed a deal with Reprise in America and, and Canada. And so I was doing a lot of touring in, in Europe and the United States, and um, those records were critically acclaimed and since mostly uh, I'm, I'm a multi-instrumentalist, but mostly I, I focus on pedal steel guitar and I kind of don't, I mean, I've played plenty of country music, but I also like to dabble in other uh, styles. And, you know, I just ended up getting noticed by a bunch of other people. And suddenly I was getting uh, session calls from my first big Hollywood session call was Jellyfish. Um, and, you know, that led to, uh, oh, Chris Isaac, uh, Black Crows, um, uh, Cheryl Crow, uh, you know, some international stuff. I mean, just it led to a bunch of different places, which eventually got me working shoulder to shoulder as a musician with some really brilliant engineers and producers, guys like Chad Blake and Mitchell Froome and uh, Mark Needham and Bob Clearmountain and, you know, guys like that. So I was able to be a fly on the wall in those kinds of sessions. And that's, you know, uh, and then uh, eventually uh, I left American Music Club through a friend. I got uh, signed to an independent deal with Hearts of Space Records, put out one record with them which opened some new doors. And it was right about then that my wife and I purchased the home that we have now, which has a sep separate building on the property, which has, which I re converted into a recording studio. It's, it's small, but it's uh, super effective for me. Um, and so I spent, I opened the room in 2000. And for the first probably 15 years of that, uh, my typical MO working as a producer would be to start projects in a bigger studio locally where I, you know, had a big console and ISOs and all sorts of room work for, you know, two days to a week and collect enough basic tracks to be able to come back to my studio for overdubs, editing and mixing. And that's kind of where I've been 
you know, since 2000. Also doing some soundtracks when I get the opportunity to do that. That's my really my favorite kind of work at this point because it uh, involves every bit of knowledge that I've ever gained along the way. It, it requires the engineering knowledge, music production, composition, music performance, and then the whole thing of, you know, collaborating with other people. So that's amazing. That's, that's where there, I'm there, at. There's so much to unpack from that. And, and I feel like your life has been, has been very cyclical in a lot of ways where, you know, you, you were a musician, got into the studio, you know, doing work and you're learning from some of these amazing producers who are in their own right or just, you know, they've done some amazing things. And then from there, you can turn all that into your own projects and, you know, like implement a lot of that same stuff. It, it's quite, quite amazing to, to hear. Um, I'm curious to know, just like on the note of working with a lot of those bigger producers, like what are some of the bigger lessons that you learned being kind of a fly on the wall in those situations? Uh, I would say that the number one lesson I learned was just work ethic. Um, because I have never seen people work as hard as like, for instance, I think Mark Needham for me, uh, who, if people aren't aware of him, he was Chris Isaac's engineer for a very long time and he's done a ton of other stuff as well. <clears throat> uh, Fleetwood Mac. And uh, I think he did Etta James or, you know, he's just done a huge variety of stuff. And that man works himself to the bone. And, you know, and that's the thing is that this is, it's an art and there's science to it, but it's also such a craft. And especially back in the analog days, uh, you know, you had to be, you know, I'll just, I'll just say wor working with Mark one time, one, one, I, th I think maybe one specific, uh, window into how hard he would work. Uh, I came in to do an overdub one day and he was working with an artist, a well-known artist who, you know, was a really good singer. I mean, I've heard the guy sing live and, you know, amazing singer. And, uh, I, I think as I was about to leave, I asked Mark what he was going to be doing for the rest of the day. And he said, oh, yeah, we're uh, working on vocals. I, I think I'm up to like 125 takes and, <laughs> and counting wow. in, the, in the vocal composite that he was making. And that, that was back in the day when, you know, you, you had to bounce uh, analog tracks to, to make a composite vocal. And, you know, that, that requires a level of skill and precision and commitment that I don't think contemporary engineers can really understand, you know, working in a non-destructive environment. I mean, believe me, I'm, I'm all for the democratization of, uh, recording tools, but I also feel so lucky to have been alive and working in the analog era because I got to see a perspective that I don't think really exists in a certain sense at this point. Yeah, that's that's interesting. It, it you know it's it goes to show the level of passion and dedication people have as well, right? Like mm. people who work that hard, it's it's not just because they like work. I mean, there are some people that are workaholics, but generally, it's like you know, there's some element of gratification out of it. And you know, I think when you're working with an artist and you you're sharing that cre that creative vision, sometimes you just have to put in that time to to get the results that that you want, right? I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, one of the questions on your on your list of questions that I thought I would uh, get into a little bit is, you know, you ask something to the effect of, um, you know, what what technique or what what do you do that some people might think is crazy? Yeah. <laughs> and and for instance, for me, 
you know, if you're working in pop music, what's the most important track in a pop song? It's the lead vocal, you know, hands down. There's, there's nothing more important than that. And so I, when I'm leveling a lead vocal, I do it by hand and I do it on a syllabic basis. I, I DS by hand. I, you know, if, if a particular syllable needs to come up or down, I do it by hand because that to me, and, and that, you know, I have to say that that actually comes from my exposure to Mark Needham again. Um, remembering watching him when he would do, uh, when he was compositing a vocal, he would run it through a fader and he would rehearse and then record uh, moves, you know, leveling moves on the fader before he would commit it to the, uh, to the composite, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, you can do that kind of stuff with automatic leveling devices. Just doesn't sound the same to me. Well, there, the, there's something to like the, uh, the hand touch, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's a feeling more than it is like an algorithm to some degree. Totally. Totally. I mean, you know, because machines as intelligent as they're becoming, um, you know, I don't know that the emotional content, uh, of the work that we do is, is really part of that package yet. You know, it's, it's funny cause I just read an article this morning about, um, engineers trying to engineer morality into self-driving cars, trying to choose which disaster is the least uh, awful. You know, Interesting. It's like, do, do you choose the pregnant woman or do you choose the five old people, you know, to, to avoid crashing into, you know? And, you know, I just don't think that, that, uh, that I've just never met a compressor that levels a vocal to my, complete satisfaction. I, and, and that's not that I, I do use compression in recording vocals. I use it when I'm tracking and I use it after I've done my hand leveling, but I don't use it in the same way that I would have used it in the analog era, because in the analog era, the reason for compression was signal to noise ratio amongst other things. And we don't have that problem at this point. Thank goodness. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cause it, it was more of like an automatic leveler to some degree, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. Um, I do want to touch on your, your session musician side of things. So, you know, it, it sounded like you were, you were playing in, as a musician in bands and stuff like that. And then you kind of fell into this world of being a session musician and recording in the studio, which I, I think is, is awesome. And you've definitely recorded a lot of great, great parts for some huge acts. So, um, I'm curious to know a little bit more about, first off, how did you decide to become a pedal steel player? I, I feel like I don't know too many people that jump into that. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I should go back and talk to myself, uh, in 1976. <laughs> I, I was, um, you know, there, there's like, I just read this morning that Eno says that, you know, that he, he's not sure that he, uh, would have, uh, you know, chosen the life that he chose. I know that Bowie had the the same thing. It's like, if he grew up now, would he have chosen to do what he did? Back in 1976, when I was starving, um, you know, living in the basement that I was recording in, uh, paying $75 a month rent and barely being able to make that a good day meant an egg in my uh, top ramen, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, I was trying to bootstrap myself as a musician, trying to, you know, get a career going. Uh, 
and I was a guitar player at that point. And I was working in a music store, and one day a pedal steel came in. It was a, a terrible little student model pedal steel, and I, you know, that was at a time when pedal steel was starting to make inroads into popular music, both Lloyd Green playing for Paul McCartney, Jerry Garcia playing for uh, the New Riders, the Purple Sage, and Crosby, Stills, and Nash and & Young, and uh, so I was starting to hear pedal steel. I, I wasn't a country music guy when I was a kid, um, but I was starting to hear it, and I thought it was a really cool instrument. I mean, it sounded really amazing. One came into the store. I decided to, you know, the guys at the store were really nice. They let me take it home and mess with it for a while. I decided to buy it. I spent the next six months literally uh, seven days a week, probably six hours of practice time per day, because I thought if I can just get myself up and running on this thing, then I can work more. Right. Interesting. And so, uh, and that turned out to be the truth. I, I, I practiced that way for six months and then I gave up for a year cause it was just, it sounded like a, a really bad cat fight. Um, and, but I came back to it and I started incorporating it into my, you know, my nightclub, uh, gigging. I think the first song that I learned how to play was uh, I learned the horn arrangement for um, that song, If You Leave Me Now. Uh, what was that? A Chicago song, I think it might have been. Uh, I think so. Yeah. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Right. It's like the total 4-1 thing, which is what pedal steel is so great for. And, you know, as it turned out, as I got to know the instrument better and as I got better and better gigs, um, I just really fell in love with the thing. It's it's a super interesting musical instrument. I I kind of refer to it as the Baroque harmony generator because the musical intelligence that is built into the functionality, and I mean that in the math kind of sense, the functionality that's built into the way that the pedals and knee levers alter the tuning, it just became really fascinating. And, you know, I just, I heard a lot of different, ways that it could be used that I wasn't hearing it being used. And I've just been super fortunate to be able to, to mine some of those, uh, pathways with it. And, you know, been super fortunate to get some nice session calls to be able to, to do it for other people as well. Yeah. It's interesting that you said that you thought that by playing it, it would lead to more opportunities to, to, to work in the studio. So was that like, was that part of the intention of like choosing a bit of a different instrument rather than just being like, I'm a guitar player. This is my main thing. Like, was that, was that kind of the goal there? It was just like, if I, if I niche down to this other instrument that not too many people play, like I'm the only guy in town or something like that. Well, there weren't many guys in town. Um, you know, really a small handful of guys playing that instrument. And where I grew up, uh, surprisingly because you know i grew up in the in the san francisco bay area and which is not exactly known for country and western music but there was a really very active uh country and western nightclub scene here so i was able to kind of you know do my 10,000 hours worth of of uh you know perfecting my craft uh or striving to perfect my craft i should say uh you know playing in that environment and so you know, it was, it was, a. Uh, you know, the instrument presented 
opportunity in a number of ways. It, it, it presented opportunity to make sounds that I couldn't make on guitar. Uh, it represented opportunity to be, to stand out more. Um, oh, that guy plays pedal steel. So, you know, and he plays guitars. So I, I ended up doubling for a very long time and it was actually a hand injury. Uh, I ended up developing carpal tunnel syndrome in my left hand to the extent where I, I have this beautiful 66 Telecaster and I could not hold a bar cord down any longer uh, because my hand was in such disrepair. <clears throat> and that was a point at which I switched to becoming a, a basically a full-time pedal steel player for at least a year for my hand to heal as much as it could at least. So, you know, it just, it's f opportunity, fate, random happenstance, you know, geography. It, it's just all of that stuff built into one. Yeah. That's interesting. So, so then you started playing and you got into the studio and I imagine that once you're, once, once you're in that sphere of session musicians, I'm sure it's kind of a tight knit community, it seems. And, and I'm curious to know, like, a, a, is that true? And also, like, for people who are maybe thinking of becoming session musicians themselves, like, how does one become a session musician? Was it just luck that you fell into it? Or, or was there more of a, more of a process more, more people typically go through? Well, I think ultimately uh, success as a musician, producer, engineer, any of the hats that I wear, uh, you know, you have to be able to get along with people, number one. Um, you have to bring something that is unique. Uh, and, you know, I just think that ultimately uh, I didn't really choose much. It, it Most of it just kind of came my way. Um, being in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing. Um, <clears throat> I, you know, there are so many fabulous musicians out there in the world. I mean, I know so many who have just blown my mind who don't end up finding themselves in a position of opportunity for whatever reason, you know, um, it's, it, I think it's kind of impossible to say. I think the main thing is, uh, networking really when it really comes down to it if you want to try to get work you have to you have to be affable enough um you i guess you either have to be so great that nobody cares if you're affable or, or not um or in my case you have to be affable enough and do something that's relatively unique to be able to uh you know work shoulder to shoulder with people and, you know, visibility, I have to say that at this point in time with, you know, recording studios in every other garage at this point, um, I just don't, I don't even know how to start with, with visibility for, for people. It, you know, it, if you think about the history of recording, back in the earlier days of it, uh, you know, you had to be a successful artist <clears throat> playing gigs for anybody to care enough about wanting to bring you into a recording studio and, uh, and spend the money on producing you. So, you know, uh, whether it's like the, you know, Alan Lomax 
out in the hills of Appalachia, you know, sticking a microphone in front of, you know, somebody who uh, isn't a star or, you know, Frank Sinatra or whatever it is, you know, it, it used to be a more rarefied atmosphere than it is now. It, I, I feel pretty bad for a lot of my clients these days because they work their asses off to uh, try to get something, you know, unique and, and of quality made. And then they're, they go into the meat grinder of distribution. Uh, and you know, it's like the 0.00001 cent worth of, of remuneration on Spotify, you know, and it just, how do you make yourself known? And so, <clears throat> you know, ultimately, I think a lot of good music goes by the wayside because it's just so terribly difficult these days. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with that for sure. It's Yeah, it's interesting you were talking about networking and, and kind of the idea of, you know, the visibility. And I was curious to know how how you like to keep, like, how, how do you manage to keep top of mind with musicians these days? Because uh, I feel like, you know, as a session musician, you're always trying to connect with as many people as you can, because the more people you connect with, the more opportunities could potentially come your way. But it's also, you know, especially these days with COVID and everybody like kind of being indoors for the most part, like, what, what are the ways that you try to keep in touch with people so that you can keep top of mind? Well, you know, if you asked me that question five years ago, the answer would have been extremely different than it is now. Um, and that has to do with just, you know, the random, uh, you know, grenades that life throws at you, right? Um, my wife has had some pretty serious health issues in the last, well, since 2010, but she's, you know, nearly died twice in the last six years um, and had... I've had to spend a substantial amount of time being a caregiver in that period of time. So to be honest with you, for me personally right now, um, because my wife's health and well-being is top of mind more so than any other consideration, um, I have kind of been dialing back for the last number of years. Um, and for me, what that means is that since... I've kind of discovered over time that my favorite work is, is film scoring. And I am fortunate to every now and then get a good gig doing that. Um, you know, when my wife's health advances to the extent where I'm feeling a little bit and, and when the pandemic cools down a little bit, um, I've got a couple of little projects I'm working on right now that I want to finish. But once I get to the end of that stuff, then I intend to try to market myself more aggressively with filmmakers. That's, that's kind of the direction that I'm going. Um, you know, as far as like being the cool dude, engineer, producer guy for various bands during the pandemic, uh, I mean, I've, I've done a couple of projects during the pandemic that I am pretty wild about that I was really thrilled with. But one of the reasons I was really thrilled with is it gave me more of an opportunity to be a player, um, <laughs> you know, rather than just being the engineer producer guy. I've done so much engineering and producing at this point that I've, I've kind of come full circle yet again to 
what is it that really turns me on? And what really, really, really turns me on is writing and playing. Um, you know, producing and engineering turns me on too, but it's, it's much more involved and it's essentially impossible right now. I've got a couple of albums that have been in hiatus during the pandemic because we were in middle of tracking and, you know, nobody wants to spend time in the studio together. And uh, the albums mm -hmm. I finished, I was able to finish because I was working with clients who trusted me to kind of just take care of all the loose ends, right? We, we had vocals in the can or it was remote file sharing and that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, so I think once the pandemic is passed, assuming that we are ever past it, <laughs> which I hope we are, um, maybe I'll change my mind again, but at least for the moment, uh, Film work is is the thing that's turning me on. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, it, it's great to hear that you're kind of niching down and that you found the thing that you're most passionate about and, and you know, going all in on that. And I'm curious to know, you know, like a lot of people do tend to niche down the work or the genres of music that they work in. And I'm curious to know, do you recommend that as a session musician or is it generally better to just take on as many genres as possible and try to be the jack of all trades kind of thing? Wow, that's a good question. Um, frankly, I mean, I, like I said, I've known some incredible musicians over the course of my life, and I just don't know anyone who is equally good at everything. Um, you know, I don't expect, uh, you know, rock musicians to be able to do a jazz session or, uh, you know, a guitar player to be able to fit in with a, a classical Indian uh, you know, ensemble or anything like that. So I, I would say that, you know, the, the kind of musician, uh, the, the kind of musician that I'm most attractive to attracted to at this point, it would be someone who's capable of reading and doing a great job of interpreting notation, but at the same time plays with a heart full of emotion. Um, and for instance, uh, you know, in this crazy world we live in, there's a violinist that I became aware of, um, through working on a project with a dear old friend of mine. Uh, this woman runs a company called mini orchestra. She's Russian. She's in Russia. Uh, and she, she and a cellist friend can create a string section you know, of however many pieces you want and her rates are affordable enough that, uh, you know, she's a go-to for me at this point because I can hand her, I, I can hand her a chart or I can send her a MIDI file. Um, and I, you know, can give her instructions as to what I'm looking for. And it almost always comes back exceeding my expectations. So, you know, there's that kind of thing. Um, and then I, I had another experience recently where a guy I think is going to drop off of my list for, uh, I was working on a, a film queue and I gave him very specific instructions to record something at home. And he came back and gave me the exact opposite of what I asked for and then was inflexible about doing a second take. Those are the kind of guys that I'm not going to rehire. Right. Hmm. So, you know, yeah. it just it comes back to what I was saying earlier, being affable, 
being capable, um, and realizing that you know collaborative collaborative work is uh, requires compromise. You know, you like I don't want to be that guy in the studio that puts down someone else's idea without giving it due diligence. It's like, so if somebody is able to express what they want to hear and it's within my power to give that to them, then far be it from me to not, um, you know, and, and, and a lot of times you can learn in that process, right? It's like, oh, I wouldn't have thought to do that. Oh, well, maybe next time I should think to try that, you know? Yeah, so being flexible and, and cooperative and a good team player, that's the, that's the way to get work as, as, a, as a session musician. And, be, and of course, you've got to be able to play. And, of course. <laughs> and, and emote and, um, and be a good hang, you know? Yeah, I, I love that you brought, you kind of showed both sides of the coin there. Where it's like, you know, the person that you would ultimately hire versus the person who you're you don't want to work with. And I think it's important to like hear that that hear both sides of that because then it allows people to realize like, oh yeah, maybe like I am kind of being a jerk about the way I approach my projects or, you know, like maybe I do need to be a little bit more forgiving and flexible with with all that. Cause I, I do think that what you said there makes so much sense. It's like you have to just be like a collaborative person. And if you're not, then to me, I have to say that in my work as a producer, engineer, and session player, um, th- uh, you know, I, you could put this on my epitaph, which is just uh, there's no there's no higher experience than friendly, creative collaboration. You know, I, I just love getting in with it with people and finding out. You know, like when I'm working as a as a film scorer my favorite part of that process is the conversations that I have with the director to find out, you know, okay, so I see the, I see the film that I'm going to be working with. I understand the surf on a surface level, what it is that you're saying, but what are you really saying underneath? Where where are you trying to guide the audience? And that to me is the, that's the nut. That's the part that is the um, part that I want to be involved in is because, you know, especially, uh, with the amount of uh, division, political division especially, that exists in the world we're in right now, being able to cooperate and collaborate and produce something positive is, it's life affirming, you know, in, in the face of so much negativity. Mm-hmm. Well, I love what you said there about asking the director, like, where they want to go with that, because that I mean, that is ultimately what a film score should do. It's not just about adding music to picture. It, it's it's making people feel something and, and steering them in that direction. So to I, you actually... Know, you know, how I, I describe it as music is the emotional rudder of a film. It's true. It's absolutely true. Yeah. It's funny. I, I was working at a uh, post-production facility many years ago, and I remember when that movie um, No Country for Old Men came out. And oh, that movie goodness, had... Yeah. And that movie had no audio or no no music at all. And and I remember like the owner of the studio freaking out about it. He was like, What's happening here? Like, you know, like we need to make like this movie relies so heavily on the the sound effects and all that stuff and the dialogue, but it's like it's a major chunk of the movie missing by not having any audio. Right. Oh, what a scary movie that was. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> But but yeah, I mean, it, it it's refreshing to hear your approach to it because it's not just 
there are, there are some people that think that it's, it is just making music to match up the picture and to go with like the, the cuts and all that. But, but I think by creating that emotional response in the music, it, it really does take someone to a new level with, with the picture. Yeah, I certainly think so. Yeah. You had mentioned earlier the idea of reading music as well. And I'm curious to know, is it necessary to be able to read music as a session musician? No. Um, You know, obviously, some of the greatest music in the world has been made by people who do not work with notation. Uh, Paul McCartney is a great example. Um, John Lee Hooker, a guy that I was able to work with early on in my career, he, he was illiterate period. I mean, he could not read or write English, um, let alone music, right? So it's, it's you know, it's one of those things. Uh, knowledge, music knowledge is a kind of a funny, uh, funny idea, right? Because where I think where music comes from, and, and because my wife has suffered from brain aneurysms, um, I've kind of had to learn a lot about uh about the way the brain works. And, you know, there's the left hemisphere, which is more analytical, and the right hemisphere, which is, you know, uh, out of linear time and, and is considered to be the more creative side of our ourselves. You know, the way that music works for me, at least, is because I'm not a gifted uh, sight reader. You know, I never have been. It's just been one of those stumbling blocks for me. It just never connected with with sight reading. I, I'm literate. I I understand music notation. I can write music using notation, and I can deliver charts and that kind of thing. And you know, so it's it's all good in that regard. But the way that I look at you know notation and or theory you know, harmony, counterpoint, all of the stuff that can be studied in school, all that stuff is after the fact. The, the music comes from a non-temporal, uh, creative place. And I'm, you know, I know that, or I, I should say that I, I have very strong suspicions that Johann Sebastian Bach and Beethoven and those dudes you know, they didn't write the rules first. They made the music, and then everybody has made the rules based on what they did, right? They, they, they heard what sounded good to them. They were able to communicate it. So I find that stuff like notation and, and music theory and all that stuff, it's super useful for communicating between musicians and, and production people. But it's not where the music comes from. So you don't need, if, if you're, a great player, soulful player who brings the goods every time you you sit down and do what you do, uh, you're going to work, right? Um, if, you, if all you can do is read, then you, you might still work too, but it would be more like in a symphony setting or, you know, like a, a pickup, uh, a contract band for, you know, when... Uh, Julio Iglesias comes to town or whatever, you know what I'm saying? Um, where you're just, there's a chart, you read the chart, you go, you go home. So, yeah. Yeah. But even still, I mean, you're right. If you are reading, you still need to put in the, the emotion and the feel to it as well. It can't just be like a static thing and, you know, no, otherwise it just, it sounds mechanical. Exactly. I mean, the computers do that really well. Yeah, we don't need musicians for that. Yeah. <laughs> we just need someone to like type it in with a keyboard, MIDI keyboard, and then we're done, right? <laughs> exactly. Quantize it and you're, it's all good. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, as a session musician, I'm curious to get your thoughts on, you know, with these days, especially again with COVID and all this stuff, do you think that it's important for session musicians to have their own home studios? I just don't know how a contemporary musician can survive, especially with the pandemic. Um, you know, maybe maybe that's changing now, but at least over the last, you know, over the first 15 months of the pandemic, um, my studio was not open, you know, to, to outside players coming in. Um, and if I wanted to work with someone, they, they had to be able to record themselves at home. I actually uh, helped a couple musicians that I know get up and running to the best of their ability um, with home studios where they hadn't done that before. Um, simply because I wanted to be able to use them on a track, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I think being computer literate in this day and age for music production, I just don't see how you get around it. Um, again, I, I suppose like if you're a, you know, if you're a Zakir Hussein or, or uh, someone who is just so head and shoulders, notably above all of the rest who can just depend on, you know, someone else to do the tedious parts of it for them, you know, more power to them. But yeah. how many guys are there that are like that? It's true. Yeah. I kind of think of it like an extension of your instrument in a way where it's like, you have to, you have to be able to not only play your music and, and have good equipment and blah, 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 but like to be able to actually perform it and record it is now, especially as a session musician, it's like, it's that extra thing that makes you, attractive to other musicians you know it's like if you can record yourself and you can do a good job of it then you know it saves having to pay someone at a big studio and hope that you can get in there and you know yeah all, all that kind of stuff yeah yeah i mean it's just you know it's just part of the language at this point really mm -hmm. you know and i also think it's i mean maybe it's just a selfish thing but i, I think it's a lot of fun to to be able to record your own instrument and feel good at it you know oh <laughs> uh, yeah i mean I, I can't tell you how frustrating it is for me when I, like, I, I try to always negotiate when I'm doing session playing at this point that I can do it at home because my, my process, if, if I was engineering me, I would drive myself crazy. Uh, you know what I'm saying? But as a musician engineering myself, I've just developed a process where I don't care if it takes me 40 takes to do a phrase the way that I want to hear it because I know what it is in my head. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of uh, this one producer engineer guy that I have done sessions for who would not allow me to develop my ideas. And with pedal steel, it's like, you know, it's a non-fixed pitch instrument. So tuning is just another one of those things that you, you know, you, there's tone production, there's, you know, choosing the right way to, to articulate something. Uh, there's all of these different parameters that have to be firing on all cylinders at the same time for me to be happy with the work that I'm doing. And I remember I, I recorded something and it was out of tune and I heard it back and I said, Oh, that's out of tune. We got to fix that. I said, no, I love it that way. And it's like, ah, oh, you know, so <laughs> yeah, I, I adore recording myself. And plus also I figured out how to make my instrument sound the way I want to hear it. Right. And that means that my mic collection and my uh, preamp collection and my compression collection, all that stuff 
it's very cu- carefully curated after you know literally decades of searching for the sound mm-hmm. that I want to hear, right? So you know you can't you can't just walk into a studio and say, hey, engineer dude, you know I'm going to tell you how to do your job. Uh, use this <laughs> mic and that preamp, and you know, I mean, some people afford that possibility. You know, like if if they recognize that you've spent a lot of time working on that part of your skill, but you know, then for other people, it it actually ends up being, uh, you know, kind of a a way to get on their wrong side. It's like you know, you know what I'm saying. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm thinking of when I was on tour one time with American Music Club, we were carrying our own monitor system for our our singer and. I remember this one club that we played at where the house engineer was so affronted by the fact that we were carrying our own monitors and that I had the audacity to be setting that up on his stage. You know, I mean, (laughs) give me a break. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, your instrument best and, and that's just, yeah, that, that's ultimately going to get you a better sound. It, it kind of reminds me of like years ago, I was on tour with Kiss and uh, this band that I was tour managing, the guitar player, uh, they had been signed by Gene. So, uh, you know, they had a close close relationship with him. But um, the guitar player, he liked to play his guitar pretty high up on his body. And oh, that, every that, night... that That's a, a quick route to, uh, to huge prejudice. I I also play my guitar very high up. So okay, okay. (laughs) So so every every night before we would hit the stage, Gene would walk by the dressing room and be like, "Steve, you got to put it down by your waist. That's rock and roll. You can't you can't you can't do it." And and he bugged him for so like we were on tour with him for like three and a half months, and like finally like three months in. The guitar player was like, you know what? I'll do it just to please you one for one night. And he did it. And it was the worst set of the whole whole tour because he wasn't used to playing it that way. Yeah. It was like yeah. it was an uncomfortable thing for him. And, it's also and, a great way to injure yourself. Totally. Yeah. And, and I remember afterwards he was like, Gene, I'm never listening to you again. Like that, that was horrible. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, it goes to show like when you when you know your instrument, and you know, what makes it sound good and the equipment that makes it sound good. Like, yeah, why not use it the way you, the way you love it. Right. That that's, I mean, you know, again, it's, it, it just depends on what the situation is and what, uh, the people you're working with are trying to get. If they're, if they want to get your best, then there's a, there has to be some give and take. And that, and again, that turns around and that relates to something I said earlier, which is to, as an engineer producer, you have to be open to listening to and compromising with the people you're working with uh, if you want to get the best out of them. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. if you shut... The quickest way for me to give you something that's not good is if you shut part of me down. Yeah. And I I do think that it depends on whose project it is as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, establishing whose creative vision is the one that we're all trying to accomplish here. And and depending on how they feel about it, obviously, like then you know what you can and can't get away with, because sometimes it's sometimes, you know, as much as the producer wants to be the person that's overseeing everything, sometimes it's just like, you know, the lead songwriter of the band is the one that's paying the bills and it's like going to be their rules. Right. So you do have to you do have to establish kind of who the leader of these sessions are so you can get all on the same page and and ultimately work together to make that person's vision come to life. Right. Yeah, I think I mean, ultimately, it ends up being 
the last hands that touches it, right? I mean, uh, you know, the the mixer is the one who ends up with. I, I mean, obviously, it's the client who's paying the bills, who is the the last voice to be heard. But uh, you know, someone like one of the things that I, I'll tell people that I'm working with, you know, when I'm trying to get them to do something that doesn't feel innate to them, is I'll just say, look, you know. I sent you these tracks a few days ago. You've probably listened to them for maybe an hour or two. Um, and I've been working on this for months. I've heard this track probably 300 times. I know what it needs on a molecular level. This is what it needs. Please give me that. Right. And if they, if they can do it, great. If they can't do it, then I'll try to edit my way through what they give me after the fact. <laughs> and if the editing doesn't work, then I'll, I'll get somebody else to do what they were doing. That's, yeah. that's all there is to it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of recording your own instrument, I'd love to talk about recording pedal steel because it's not something that I feel a lot of people get the opportunity to record. So I'd love to talk about, you know, what, what is the best way to record a pedal steel? Well, that would depend on who you ask, of course. Um, for me personally, uh, I just, you know, growing up when I grew up and, and having had the analog experience all along the way, um, I still haven't heard modeling that uh, matches up to me to uh, an amplifier and a speaker and air and a microphone and a preamp and a compressor and into the, the DAW. So what I do, I, I, I have a, a very, very expensive volume pedal. Um, volume pedal, you know, the way that a pedal steel works is, it's, so it's like a table, right? With strings stretched over it. There's a bridge, you know, just like a guitar has a bridge. It's, it's a fancy electric guitar is what it is, but it's mounted on a table. The bridge, uh, has what are called fingers that the string comes over the top of. And those uh, fingers are on an axle and they're connected to pedals and knee levers that either stretch or relax one or more strings anywhere from a half step to a step and a half or thereabouts. Um, and so the tuning is, is the open tuning is what changes uh, by virtue of those pedals and knee levers. Uh, so when you're playing pedal steel, your left hand is holding the bar. Your right hand usually has picks on it and you're plucking the strings. Your left knee is between knee levers. Your right knee is between knee levers. Your left foot is playing an assortment of, of these pedals that change the pitches. And then your right foot is hovered over a volume pedal. It's a full body workout. It, it totally, it's, it's a very strange <laughs> thing. There's a lot of muscle memory going on there. The volume pedal that I've got is made by a company called Telonics. And the pedal has one input, two outputs uh, that are in parallel and buffered, and one uh, other output, which is for a tuner, uh, which is also buffered. Um, I also have a second one where they, they designed it where it has a VCA uh, output as well. Um, the, what I do be, because I, I can only 
do one thing well at a time and sometimes barely that. And when I'm playing pedal steel, my engineering skill just evaporates. Um, I, I can't watch levels and play at the same time. So I've learned over time that I need to be, to give myself a safety valve there, which is, so one of my outputs goes to an evil twin direct box. Um, so, uh, and that is set up so that I know that I've got a clean signal if I have to go back and reamp. My other, the other leg output goes to a, a preamp, uh, which feeds a power amp. And I have a, you know, a feed through in my, in my control room to my studio. I feed the amplifier output so as to not lose any, uh, high frequency through capacitance, uh, out into the other room. I have a speaker out there. I use, um, uh, I've come to find over the years that my favorite mic for recording pedal steel is a Sony C37A, uh, which is a vintage tube mic, large capsule condenser. Uh, I feed that into a DW Fern VT2. Uh, that goes into a Pendulum OCL2 uh, opto tube opto compressor, and that goes straight to Pro Tools. And then in Pro Tools, um, I always set up both a delay and a reverb, and I use those in very ample amounts in monitoring what I'm doing because I find that I, and I have always found that playing less is more um, and having sounds that are able to develop over time is encourages me to play less. And so then when I'm done, it's like, say, for instance, I'm doing a remote track for somebody, then I'll go through and I'll composite my pedal steel track, which is a simple, you know, well, well it's the the DI plus the amp track, which are coupled. Um, I'll edit my way through that, crossfade that, and then print a final processing that I usually send off. Depending on how much I trust or distrust the engineering on the other side of that, I'll either send off a composite dry plus wet signal, or I'll send the dry signal plus a wet signal and just kind of uh, instruct the engineer, you know, the wet, if you put these two stems, you know, at unity gain, uh, you'll get what I was hearing and you can start there or you can tear it apart and do what you want with it. And I've had people uh, use just the the stereo effects return, um, just the the dry stuff. You know, it, it just depends on, on the situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty hefty chain you got there, but obviously, yeah, you've worked on it over, like you said, decades, and you know, you've dialed it into a point where you know what to expect from it. Exactly. Yeah. And as as far as the amp that you would go out to, what what kind of amps do you typically use for those? Well, uh, these days, my chain seems to be uh, a Brad Sarno Tube Revelation preamp. Uh, Brad Sarno is a... Uh, uh, a guy that I first met many years ago at a pedal steel convention. He's kind of like a pedal steel uh, electronics guru. Um, and his preamp is really gorgeous. I mean, it's uh, it's really well thought out. Um, you know, there's an effects loop in it. There's uh, a, you know, the instrument in and then a send return 
prior to the preamp so that your volume pedal can go in at a good good spot. Uh, you know, it's parametric uh, middle uh, frequency section. Uh, you know, it's just got it's it's and it's it's all tube. It's it's just a great sounding box. Um, that I run into um, a an Evans uh, solid state power amplifier because I find that the combination of tube front end and solid state back end for pedal steel is very effective because pedal steel, uh, if you're going to distort it, um, you have to be pretty intentional, intentional, intentional about it. Easy for me to say. Um, because one of the things that's really interesting, you know, guitar players might relate to it. Like if you're playing, very high and you play two notes at the same time, a dyad. If you're playing with a lot of distortion, you end up getting something called a difference tone, which is, uh, you know, it becomes very obvious on pedal steel because if you're on pedal steel, you're able to bend notes in the opposite direction at the same time. So like if, if I had an E and a B, playing at the same time i can raise the e to f sharp and lower the b to a for instance um you know without moving the bar right and so you get this uh, kind of like zippering effect and when you do that at a high high up on the neck you'll get this tone that appears where the minute that the tuning you know like how good how you can use beating to recognize when two notes aren't in tune with each other. Mm -hmm. yep. The difference tone is, is kind of like that. I mean, case, case in better point, let's say that I was playing a unison uh, high up on the neck with two notes, you know, high in frequency, <clears throat> where I then make one go up and one go down. You know, if you just slightly detune them, then you're going to get beating. That beating literally starts at one cycle and then it's you know the farther you get it that that frequency increases on the bottom end so as you detune the two notes you get this you get this huge bottom note out of them and so if you have distortion on a pedal steel that become it can become a pretty significant ugly problem so having a high-powered amplifier is a way of of ensuring that you don't have that kind of distortion now it's also fun to play with that if you are intentionally distorting for that i have a bogner Uberschall uh head that i that i'll plug into um or a fender deluxe that's been modified um or a brad sarno uh earth drive which is a, a pedal that minimizes that difference tone problem um so that's my amplification system. I, I have a couple of cabinets that I built myself, uh, and a, they're open back 15, uh, 15 inch JBLs or eminence either, either way. Um, and again, it's all, it's all just time tested stuff. That's cool. Yeah. I, I've, I've always been amazed by the, like, I love the sound of pedal steel. And I think that it can create some like really cool ambient sonic textures. And I love that. And I, I've, I've only had the pleasure of recording it once. And I remember just being like in a trance recording it, you know, it was like such a cool experience. And I was wondering what are some of your favorite signal chains for creating those lush tones? Is it, is it just simply reverb and delay? 
Uh, to a very great extent. Um, uh, you know, at one point I actually had a MIDI pickup on my pedal steel. And so I would generate, uh, you know, synth or sampled stuff simultaneously. Um, you know, you can do that, um, with a keyboard, you know, after the fact. So I kind of stopped, uh, using that because carting around that much gear was just ridiculous. I mean, I, I was able to do it while touring. Um, but you know, playing gigs around town and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, it's just, it's too much hassle. So, uh, you know, again, I grew up in, in an era when the digital delay and digital reverb was invented, <laughs> you know, I'm an old guy. Uh, and lexicon has always been a sound that I've just adored. I mean, you know, um, and I'm very pleased that lexicon has a, what they call the PCM total bundle for, uh, use with a digital audio workstation. I just love the way that sounds. I'm also, I use uh, Valhalla, Reverbs every now and then, um, Altiverb, uh, you know, various different things at different times. But I'd say that my go-to is is definitely still Lexicon. It's a, it's just this miraculous sound as far as my ear is concerned. And then um, I use um, Sound Toys. Echo Boy is my favorite uh, delay at this point. I I just love how versatile and controllable it is. Um, and you know, then I'll, I'll feed delay into reverb and you know, this and that, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty much where that kind of ambient signal path comes from. That's awesome. Yeah. And everything I've heard of yours, it, it you have a great tone and obviously, oh, you. yeah, you've, you've definitely refined that and, and made it into something that just sounds nice and polished and gives you that space. It, I think pedal steel is, I think that's what people want. They want that ambient sounds, right? Well, many people do. Yeah. Um, certainly I, I think, uh, I don't know, you know, I've never been tempted to move to Nashville, uh, you know, because I just don't think that, uh, what I do would necessarily fit in there all that well. I, I don't really like playing <clears throat> that kind of, uh, sort of utterly predictable, stuff. I mean, I, 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 don't get me wrong. I'm not putting down what they do there. It's, uh, it's, there's a very, very super high level of proficiency and creativity and skill, uh, there. It's just, I like the periphery of musical style <laughs> more personally. Fair. Absolutely. Well, I don't want to take up too much more, more of your time, so we should probably start to wrap up here. But if people want to learn more about you, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, I have a website. It's just uh, www.brucecapen.com. That's K-A-P-H-A-N. And, uh, you know, I don't tend to uh, maintain the website all that terribly well, but it, it has a good historical, uh, you know, presentation of of like my discography is there, which <clears throat> sad to say that the the idea of a discography in a streaming age starts to become something <laughs> uh, kind of difficult to try to figure out how to maintain because, you know, 
when a when something comes out and there's no graphics involved with it and there's no uh, physical release or any such thing, it's you know it's hard to figure out exactly how to post it. But a lot of my history is up there in the discography, and then I my albums are up there. And uh, there's a couple other projects that I did recently that I'm I'm very proud of and that I would recommend people go see. Um, on Bandcamp, you can find both of them on Bandcamp. One is a guy named Jerry Vessel, uh, V-E-S-S-E-L. Uh, he, his closest claim to notoriety has been as bass player of Red House Painters. Uh, we just did a, an album during the pandemic, but finished it during the pandemic. We started before the pandemic and finished during that I think is really remarkable. Uh, it's one of the most uh, deeply emotional albums I've I've ever worked on, uh, and then I've done a ton of records with Victor Krumenacher. Uh, that's K R U M M E N A C H E R, uh, who is uh, most note notoriety uh, has come with uh, Camper Van Beethoven and Cracker as their bass player. Uh, but Victor and I have done, I can't even count how many records we've done together. And his most recent one, Silver Smoke of Dreams, is up on Bandcamp as well. And it was also one that was done in the pandemic. And um, it was a really remarkable experience in terms of the uh, the whole, uh, uh, you know, remote sharing thing. We, we, I Tracks came in from uh, his drummer in Los Angeles uh, that, you know, he had no re experience recording himself. So they, I think he might've been recording with the onboard mic on his laptop into garage band. And, you know, so there's the whole thing of getting <clears throat> these really disparate tracks to, to work together. That was super challenging, but also really rewarding. Yeah, sometimes you can get some crazy sounds by by attempting weird techniques like that. Yeah, whether I, they're intentional or intentional or not, right? Yeah, <laughs> I, ended, I ended up learning a ton about. Uh, I mean, I'd, I'd been using it for a long time, but uh, Stephen Slate's trigger was mm -hmm. remarkable, a, a remarkable, powerful tool in, um, you know, extrapolating stereo tracks, right? Yeah, in 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 order to be able to trigger other sounds so that was cool that's definitely awesome yeah awesome well well looking forward to uh checking out those those tracks that you, that you suggested there and and bruce thank you so much for taking the time to be on here i think you give tons of great information about you know being in that session musician world and and i think that that that's something a lot of people aspire to get into but maybe they don't have any idea of what what's involved or how to get into it right well best of luck to anyone who wants to try it's um you know <clears throat> again when i came up you know, it was a different environment uh, because of uh, major label work was still something that actually happened then. I'm not, I don't even, I just, the landscape these days is is nothing but confusing to me. Um, you know, so I think <clears throat> the definition of session musician at this point is probably closer to what you were describing at one point in the conversation, which is just, you know, being able to record yourself at home and being of use to other people. And it's true. Being able to do that, it's worth it's worth the effort to uh, to learn the tools, and you know, purchase the tools to be able to to do the work. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's a great great spot to stop. So uh, yeah, once again, Bruce, thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Appreciate nice it. to meet you. So that was my interview with Bruce Kappen and... That was a great interview. I love the stories that he shared, especially about working with Mark Needham and his work ethic that he had. And I also love Bruce just being honest about what the current state of being a session musician is and what that looks like these days versus, you know, maybe 10 years ago or so. I think it really shed some light on what you should do if you yourself are trying to become a session musician and how to best prepare yourself so that you can get those gigs, whether it's recording on your own or recording at a studio or reading other people's music and all that stuff. I think Bruce just touched on so many great topics here. So if you're considering becoming a session musician and you're curious to know, you know, what should you be doing? Definitely revisit this episode because there is a ton of great stuff in here. So I hope that you enjoyed that episode, and if you did, definitely make sure to subscribe to this podcast, that way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live, and also make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com, that is where I help out musicians with their home studios, and I help them create pro-sounding recordings from their home studios, making the process of recording, editing, and mixing your music very easy. You know, my goal here is to help you feel proud of the music that you're writing, and feel excited to share it with the world, so I want to help you make the process of mixing easy, and feel confident in the process. So definitely make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com because on that website, I've got tons of great resources designed to do just that. One thing that you're going to want to check out while you're there is The Mixing Mindset. This is a book that I put out a few years ago that became an Amazon number one bestseller. And inside of that book, I really break down the process step by step for mixing your records from beginning to end so that you know exactly what to do at all stages and when you're done, because that is also a very important thing as well. You need to know when you're done your mixes so that you can actually put this music out there. Because if you just feel stuck in that trap of not knowing whether you're done or whether you should be doing more to your project, you'll never release it. So uh, inside of that book, I really make it very clear what the process is that you should follow so you can feel confident with your music and ultimately put it out. So once again, that book is available at MasterYourMix.com and it's called The Mixing Mindset. So with that said, that is it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed that and I look forward to chatting with you in the next one. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.